Welcome aboard! We will be your guides during this magical journey into the movies. It's the perfect job for us because we love the movies. It's showtime! Ready when you are, CB! Action! Welcome to Monoreal Radio, episode number 179. I'm Sean. And I'm Jackie. And we are here to discuss 1988's Oliver and Company. The Renaissance. I truly do believe that this is the start of the Disney Renaissance. A lot of people will tell you that The Little Mermaid was the start of it. I think there's validity to that. Some people could argue it's Great Mouse Detective. That I don't necessarily disagree with, but to me... This is the film that I have always considered the rebirth of Disney animation. Right, because as we've all seen in Waking Sleeping Beauty, this is where they really started pouring money back into these films, which is evidenced by the star power we get with Billy Joel and Bette Midler. And, I mean, Cheech Marin, Dom DeLuise, I could go on and on. This cast is huge. Um, But really, look no further than Howard Ashman because this was his first time working with Disney. And a lot of people don't know that. A lot of people think the lead was Little Mermaid, but it was actually Oliver and Company. Right, he does have one writing credit on it, and we're going to talk about all of that later on when we start breaking down the soundtrack. But it is amazing to me, and I'm, I'm burying kind of the lead here before we even get into it, but it is amazing to me that for some reason, this has always kind of been a forgotten Disney classic. That's even evidenced by, you know, we've made mention of it on the show before that I love collecting Disney animation cells. Some might even say, some being Sean, that I have an unhealthy obsession with it. Yes, uh, Sean would say that. (laughs) Um, But when I started collecting, my first one my parents had gifted me, which was uh, Mickey in A Christmas Carol. Right. Um. Then I got Flounder, and then I got Oliver and Company, and we actually have two Oliver and Company cells because, I hate to say it, they were relatively easy to acquire. I didn't get into a bidding war. They were relatively cheap compared to some of the other ones that I've purchased, and, you know, that's happening even now. It still hasn't, you know, even with things like, the podcast boom coming off of Disney Plus or TikTok and people doing a series where they revisit all of the animated films, which is very popular. And there are some very good ones, might I add, on TikTok, uh, if you're on the Disney side of TikTok. Uh, But even now, it's still not getting that resurgence and the credit that I think it deserves. And I think that part of the reason for that is a lack of video release. I have a story about Oliver and Company, because of course I do. When I was a kid, I, it was either the Cinderella VHS or the Little Mermaid VHS, but they had the trailer for Oliver and Company on the tape. I'm like 99.9% sure it was Little Mermaid, because that's honestly what I remember most about this film is the trailer and getting Why Should I Worry stuck in my head. So between Cinderella and Little Mermaid, what was I watching more? Absolutely Little Mermaid. So I have loved Billy Joel my entire life. So when I'm, you know, three or four years old, and I find out that Billy Joel is in a Disney movie, I have to see it. Now, I go to the video store as a kid begging for Oliver and Company on VHS. 
the thing was, it never got a VHS release. In spite of the fact that it was one of the most highly requested video releases, they never did a VHS release for Oliver and Company. Which still baffles me because this was after they realized how much money was to be made re-releasing the back catalog. Yeah, so let's fast forward now to 1996. They do a theatrical re-release of Oliver and Company. And I beg my mom to take us to go see it. Now, it was a, I don't know, it's the stupid things you, that you remember. It was the day of parent-teacher conferences, so we had a half day at school. And my mom went, we had, my brother and I had good parent-teacher conferences, everything went fine. And my mom told us that if we had our homework done, she would take us to go see Oliver and Company before she went to work. Because she was working nights at the time at the hospital. So, I get home. And of course, I right away do my homework because I have to finally see Oliver and Company. My brother goes to play Nintendo, and my mother reminds him he can't play Nintendo. He is to do his homework because we're going to see Oliver and Company, and he says, okay, fine. I get my homework done. I go back. My brother's playing Nintendo. I ask him, did you do your homework because if you didn't, we can't go the, to the movie. And he says, yes, I did my homework. So we start playing Nintendo together. My mother comes in the room and says, why are you guys playing Nintendo? I told you if you don't get your homework done, we can't go to the movie. I go, I did. I got it. It's done. And my brother says he's got his done. My mom asks to see the homework. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah, you see where this is going. I can produce a completed homework assignment. But my brother can't. Now, my brother, who's like 10 years old at the time, and my grandmother, who is still home because she lived with us, you could have just as easily left my brother at home. He could have fended for himself at the age of 10, but he had another adult in the house. But no, to teach him a lesson, we both got punished because he lied and didn't do his homework, so we didn't get to go see Oliver and Company. Now, when they eventually released it on VHS, and I don't care that this story's long, I've been waiting three years to tell this story on Monoreal Radio. You also don't care that your brother and his wife listen. Nope, don't care. Um, when the movie gets released on VHS, I go to the video store, I have my grandmother drive me there, I get the tape... My brother says, can we watch Oliver and Company? I lock him out of the room. I watch the movie by myself. When the movie's over, I unlock the door. I hand it to him. I go, the movie was great. By the way, I didn't rewind it. And only people of a certain age know what a burn that is, that you handed somebody a rented VHS tape without rewinding it. I am so happy that maturity prevailed in that situation from the older sibling. Good for you. Understand something. Do you feel better about yourself now? I feel so good. Understand (laughs) something. When you're 10 years old or 12 years old, 1996, so I was 10, so he would have been eight. Still old enough to fend for himself. Um not at eight with, a, with, with an, another with adult, an adult in the house there, yes. yes but not not by himself with another adult there yes that's but, that's like eight is kevin McAllister. yeah well and he, he turned out just fine oh god um when you're 10 years old 
and a movie came out eight years prior and you've been waiting seven years to see it, seven out of ten years is an awfully long time. I actually think I handled myself quite well. You handled yourself like a 10-year-old would have. But that is not the reason we chose to do the film this week. That's right. For Sean to finally air his grievances after almost four years of monoreal radio. We chose this in celebration of National Puppy Day, which is March 23rd. Now, even though last week we cracked the mic in the new studio with Luck of the Irish, uh, we had just gotten settled in. And after that, we went back to New York to get our dog, who was being watched by my parents. So this is our first episode with Walt home, with Walt being in this new setup in which instead we are of sitting at a desk, we're sitting on a couch, and he's doing pretty good. He is doing pretty good. But apologies for the background noise if there is any. I think he, he's adjusting to Florida pretty well. He's yeah. outside. Almost all day, so now he's exhausted. So yeah. I, I think he's going to be actually more quiet than he has in the past. Well, he may be quiet. Am I going to be quiet? No. W- was Oliver and Company worth the seven-year wait for 10-year-old Sean? That is what we are here. That exclusively is what <laughs> we are here to discuss today. This episode is sponsored by the Hidden Mickey Supply Co. Products include Disney and Pixar-inspired 3D straw charms, ornaments, and personalized photo nightlights. Listeners of Monoreal Radio can get a 10% discount with the code MONOREAL10 at checkout. Visit Hidden Mickey Supply Co. on Instagram and Etsy to stay up to date with all of the newest releases. On Fifth Avenue in New York City, we meet an orange kitten who fails to be adopted and is left orphaned on the streets. One day he meets a street dog named Dodger who temporarily takes him under his wing in order to help him steal hot dogs so that he can feed the rest of his gang. When Dodger is done with his scheme, he heads home and refuses to give the kitten any of the food that they took. The kitten follows Dodger home where he meets Tito, Rita, Einstein, and Francis, all of which take to the kitten rather quickly. We also meet Fagin, their human companion, who is in debt to Sykes, a loan shark, with two Dobermans, DeSoto and Roscoe. He gives Fagin three days to repay the money that he owes him. The next day, the gang heads out to steal whatever they can to help repay Fagin's debt. While trying to steal a car radio from a limo, yeah, it's a Disney film, the kitten is snatched up and taken home by a little girl named Jenny who names him Oliver. Oliver loves his new home, but Georgette, the family's champion show dog wants him gone. Dodger and the gang head to Jenny's house to quote-unquote break Oliver free because they believe that he's been captured, and Georgette helps them do it. When Oliver tells the gang he wants to go back to Jenny, Dodger takes it personally and refuses to help. Fagin returns home to see that Oliver has a new collar with a Fifth Avenue address and writes a ransom note to pay back Sykes. So in other words, he's taken the cat hostage. He's catnapped him. When Jenny and Georgette show up with Jenny's piggy bank to save Oliver, as opposed to a wealthy businessman or businesswoman living on Fifth Avenue, Fagin realizes that his plan has failed and he gives Oliver back to Jenny, who is then kidnapped by Sykes. Fagin and the gang chase after them and eventually rescue Jenny, while Sykes, DeSoto, and Roscoe are all killed on the train tracks. Again, I told you it was a Disney film. They return to Jenny's to celebrate her birthday and Dodger tells Oliver that he will always have a place in the gang. Um, So... I want to start with this. I think, 
I think I think the lack of home video release is a big reason why this has be, become a, a really a forgotten about Disney classic. I think the other thing, not to be confused with the movie not holding up, is that really from the start of the film, with the background animation, with the vehicles, the fashion, the music, this movie is such a time capsule of what New York City was in the 80s. And I think that for us, we remember what that was like, but perhaps somebody who's seeing this film for the first time in the younger audience that's not quite familiar with what it was like to live there, what it was like to visit there, people that have never seen it before, that have no real connection to it, I think that's part and parcel as to why this movie has slowly been lost to time. Well, I'm glad you bring that up because I think it's a really interesting point and I think it also ties back to Disney history. Um, when you think about it, obviously Oliver and Company is based off of source material. If you've been living under a rock, it is based off of Oliver Twist, which is set in London. So considering that this was an adaptation, they really could have set it anywhere. Uh, and I think New York was very specific. I mean, part of that, I'm sure, comes from wanting to cast the big name actors and actresses. If Billy Joel was on board at that point, I'm sure, I mean, that might have been like a chicken and egg scenario right. that they picked New York and they were like, okay, we need somebody that is like the heart and soul of New York, which Billy Joel was at the time. He's, you know, funny enough, you're talking about what a big fan you are of his. And I spent 35 years on Long Island and I'm not saying that I'm not a fan. I just never had the opportunity to go see him in concert. So I, now I'm going to go see him as a... Happened tourist <laughs> that, there for is, the first time. There's more New Yorkers in Florida going to see Billy Joel than there are New Yorkers seeing him in New York. I know. Please don't revoke my card. Anyway, uh, that's uh, a, th that was a Sean-like tangent for me. I don't usually go that far off the rails. Welcome. But anyway, <laughs> uh, you know, I think New York was obviously a very deliberate choice. And whether or not it had to do with casting, you know, New York in the 80s was that center of the universe. It was the center of business. It was definitely I, more so in the 90s. It was the center of fashion. Uh, but there's a reason that they picked it because everybody no matter where you were from, just kind of had that obsession with New York. And I think this does paint a very good picture of New York at the time. Probably this movie and Ninja Turtles are like what I think capture it best. Uh, but as far as this relates to Disney history, I think New York was also very deliberate because if you think about the major players that have just entered the game, they got... Michael Eisner, who was a big deal in Hollywood. They right. got Katzenberg. The company is pumping money into people who have experience in the studio industry in order to save this company. So now you have these studio execs who are networked in Hollywood and think about what else is coming out around this time. You've got Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing. Do you have... Ninja Turtles gaining popularity. So I kind of think this was 
Disney's attempt to not be left out of the club if everybody was trending New York, so to speak. Yeah, and at that point, they had already had a massive, pun intended, splash with Splash, uh, which also took place in Manhattan. Yeah, I mean, Manhattan was a very trendy thing in the 1980s. It, it was, and, and it did spill into the 90s, because you even think about Home Alone 2, where does he go? He's lost in New York. The, the Short Circuit sequel, I know it's a weird thing, but they go, to, they go to Manhattan with Johnny Five. You know, it's just like, it was the epicenter of what was cool at the time, and I think people like Billy Joel really did push that agenda. Agreed. This was admittedly, I, I wasn't putting the two and two together, but admittedly, this was kind of a hard one to watch having just left because New York is absolutely nothing like this now. But this is the depiction of the glory days. So and this is what made me fall in love with New York. So it was very hard to watch that opening sequence where it's being romanticized in that way which is juxtaposed immediately by you almost try and kill your lead no less than five different ways it's a very sad open to the film um but it's so good at the same time um i think it does a great job of setting up oliver as a sympathetic character i mean he's going to be because he's an orphan of course but i think for that little kitten to go through what he went through Bouncing against the hustle and bustle of the city, playing in harmony with the song that Howard Ashman wrote that Huey Lewis sung, and I mentioned it before, and again, we will talk about the music in a little while here. It's it's just, you know, it's harmonious, and, and it's such a brilliant, brilliant open. It's so sad, though. I mean, leaving the kittens alone is already like too much and you would never see that happen now where they're just completely alone in the box but to leave him out at night and then of course it's disney so they're gonna twist the knife it's raining the box is filling with water he almost drowns in this box before it breaks it's it is just truly heartbreaking to watch um and the first couple of times i had seen this movie i was i mean it's sad but i wasn't as deeply affected by it as I am now that I'm a pet owner. Yeah, I think that certainly because you look at you look at our dog and you just can't imagine putting him in that scenario. And I think that that's also something where like as a kid you go, "Oh, kitty's out in the rain." But like you don't like understand truly how horrible it is. You just know like in a very elementary level, you're su- you're supposed to feel really bad for this cat. I also think it's kind of a sign of the times because as you put it, you know, New York, it's always going to be known for that hustle and bustle. But I also think now our view of stray animals had cha- has changed so yeah. much as a society. Yeah. Nobody would be leaving strays like that. They just would. Somebody would have picked up, picked up that box and brought it to the nearest shelter. For sure. Let, I want to talk about um, some of the uh, background animation for a moment here and, and some of the just the backgrounds in general. Um, you see a lot of sponsors in this film and uh, name sponsors, Ryder, McDonald's, Coca-Cola, Yamaha. The truly amazing thing about this is that none of them paid for this advertising. Disney animators 
made the decision and Disney as a company made the decision to put those sponsors in because they said you can't be in Times Square without sponsors. We want this movie to look authentic. Which is funny because you would think that with Disney trying to save the company, they would have struck that deal. And New York would have been one of the it would have been one of the top reasons they picked New York because you have all that built in advertising without trying to draw attention to it and be over the top, which is funny, though, because there's one logo they didn't get clearance for. Yeah. Which one is that? The Yankees. Yes. Yeah. Uh, that is the one trademarked image that they couldn't get the clear. And, and it's not really a surprise. It's yeah. not a surprise that they couldn't get that logo. No, and it's, I, I'm i sorry, it is the Yankees. It is a navy blue hat. It's not that they tried to make it look neutral between the Yankees and the Mets. No, it's supposed to be a Yankee hat, which was really also a staple of New York in the 90s. Yeah, but even more so in the 80s, the Mets had just won the World Series two years prior. It's amazing to me that, that they didn't, like, if they couldn't get the clearance from the Yankees, why they didn't just turn to the Mets and say, can we get your <laughs> we clearance? Yeah. Maybe they did, and they both said no, and they said, well, it's got to be one or the other. Okay, we're picking the Yankees, because, I mean, the Mets at the time, they were the 86 Mets, but, I mean... The Yankees are New York. And, and I'm sorry if you're a Met fan, but that's the truth. Listen, the, the Rangers are New York, and I'm an Islander fan, and even I'll admit it. Okay, so if I can admit that, then you can admit that the Yankees are New York. It is also the most recognizable logo oh, in yeah. the world. Oh, yeah. Uh, I do want to circle back to what you said, though, that the animators wanted to make it authentic. Not only did they want it accurate to what was being advertised in Times Square... Uh, a lot of the reference photos that they took, they did it 18 inches off the ground so that you would have a dog's POV. Fantastic. It's fantastic that, I mean, even in the 80s, that these guys and these girls were thinking this way. You know, these yes. were the people. Remember, in 1988, a lot of them were the animators, the Glenn Keens of the world. Kevin Lima. Kevin Lima. Was on this. The, the, you know, the people that had been handed the reins by the nine old men. So, I mean, th they thought in ways that people just didn't think. And that's what made Disney animation so special. And that's really why films like this, I think, should be held in such a higher regard. Because the this, this was the start of the run that really did say... I mean, we're going to say it a few times. This was the start of the run that saved Disney animation. And and it's just I it's so sad that this movie kind of has become lost to time. It's true. Let's talk about how Dodger is introduced into the film. It's quick. This movie at an hour and seventeen minutes runtime is very, very fast paced. Um, which also kind of makes sense for New York in the eighties, the hustle and bustle. You're not gonna have an a New York movie that's going to have a long run time where the pacing is slow. So I love that we jump right into it. And I I love the introduction of Dodger from why should I worry to just his general disposition on life, his schemes, his scams, his attitude. I mean, we'll talk about the casting in a little while here, but this is why you cast Billy Joel in this role. And I think that in terms of introducing who very much is a secondary character because he's not the main character. 
I would say he's who you think of more because why should I worry is what like carries the film as far as in all the promotion. Yeah, but for for what would be categorized as a secondary character, I think he's got one of the all-time great introductions in Disney animation history. I agree. I love that they didn't play it as a shysty, can I trust him, can I not? He kind of saunters in much like Tramp does in Lady and the Tramp. Yes. This is where also New York works so wonderfully as the setting because, okay, obviously, again, source material, he's artful Dodger in the book. But once upon a time, the Dodgers were in New York. Yep, the Brooklyn Dodgers at Ebbets Field, once upon a time. It just works. It's it. I mean, truthfully, if you really do think about it, just little touches like that, right? Um, the adaptation of Oliver Twist into Oliver and Company set in New York, as you pointed out before, it was tailor-made for this setting. It sure is. All right. Um, let's talk about the rest of the gang. Let's talk about their hangout, because I know you have a lot to say on this. Well, this is so interesting. You know, speaking of Brooklyn, I thought it is such an interesting choice that they went with this houseboat setting. Uh, I think it's completely unexpected because when you're thinking about New York City, I mean, I feel like the obvious choice is to just go with an abandoned building. So I really like that they thought outside the box here and took it across the water to Long Island and you've got this houseboat in Brooklyn. And I think... Again, because this movie is sort of so lost to time, it's got shock value now because kids now don't know Brooklyn other than the hipsters took over and now it's overpriced. Once upon a time, like when the Dodgers were there, Brooklyn was all industry. It's a huge, uh, it's a harbor. Yeah, yeah. That's what it was. And before it became all high rises and an extension of Manhattan, this is such an accurate depiction of what it was. So I love that they they didn't do what was expected and just, you know, have them housed in an empty, you know, a, a vacant store or in Central Park or something or, or just roughing it somewhere. Sorry, no pun intended. Um, I, I just thought this was so brilliant. And I like the introduction for the rest of the cast here. I like the relationship with Tito and Francis. Um, I love how Rita just kind of shakes her head and rolls her eyes, and you could like you could tell she's the one. She's the mature one of the group. Um, and Einstein is just great comic relief. They're archetypes, but they are all so great. I love that Rita is the mom of the group that is clearly holding them all together, even though Dodger is at the forefront, she's the one who's really keeping them grounded. Um, I love any character like Francis that is rooted in the theater and lets everyone know it. Uh, Tito is just, he's so good. He's probably now I, I admittedly, I didn't watch this nearly as much as you did once the VHS came out. Yes. Um, but Tito is probably what I remember most about this film from seeing it when I was younger. Yeah, I remember that line from the trailer. And it was it was what ended the trailer. Chain me to the wall. That was what ended that trailer. And that stuck to me. And I love, I think Cheech Marin 
you know, to have him voice it is perfect. But he's just so funny because he is a chihuahua. He is, you know, little dog, big mouth. Um, With a Cuban cigar hanging out of it. But it's, he's just so funny. And when Oliver crashes in and he starts screaming, gang war, gang war, gang war, <laughs> it's brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. And it's hysterical. And this film, you know, if you haven't figured it out now, watch the first 15 minutes of this movie and the tone and the attitude is going to be something that is so unique and so different than I mean, I'd go so far as to say it's it's different than any other film that you're going to see in Disney animation. It doesn't necessarily have the shock value that the Black Cauldron does, and I don't mean that in a good way, but it certainly is unique, and it is a standout, and it's lines like that, and it's characters like that that really lend this notion that it is so different and so unique. I also love how layered this sequence is because you've got them clearly fighting for their survival and now you've got this little cat who's sort of invading the group and they're all on the defense when oliver first comes in oliver uh not named by the way yet it's like a half hour into this film before he he gets the name right now he's just the The cat. cat yep um so they set up this ragtag chosen family uh, and then we see them fight off DeSoto and Roscoe. Yeah. And you see that they're going to bat for each other. And they're so fully developed as characters that you forget that they are dogs. And then we meet Fagin and we see how loyal they are as his pets. And it's such an interesting juxtaposition how they're so tough one minute and they're completely softened by their their owner. Yeah, I think that Roscoe is a great villain. I always liked him as a villain. I liked him as a villain in this movie because I think you needed something that was going to be an adversary of Dodger. Because you have Sykes, and Sykes is an adversary of Fagin, but Fagin is really like a third-tier character in this movie. So you needed something else, and I liked Roscoe. And... um. In regards to Fagin, the dogs are soft with him, and they're so gentle with him, but I love how he is also softened with them and how he reads them the storybook and, what is it, Sparky and Bumper the rabbit, and he reads to them at night, and he brings home the dog biscuits. Remember, he doesn't have the money to live in anything other than a dilapidated houseboat. He doesn't have the money to pay back Sykes, He's hardly eating on his own. He's got holes in his clothes, but he makes sure to come home with dog biscuits. I mean, he probably stole them, but that's what he's coming home with. And I really love the relationship that they build and how the door swings both ways. Well, that's where, you know, you're you're kind of unsure just by Fagin's aesthetic. Is he a criminal? Do you trust him? But this is the defining moment where you know he's really good at heart like not even in a jack sparrow sort of way who will play both sides in favor of whatever is going to get him forward fagin is just a good guy that's down on his luck and he's doing the wrong thing to try and get out of it uh but i think that's just 
it's not really a subtle thing that he's got the dog biscuits because as soon as he walks in, they all want them. But, you know, when you really read into it that he doesn't have his own food, he eats the dog biscuit and and he takes care of them before he's taking care of himself. It's just, it's such a sweet scene. And I love how immediately accepting he is of Oliver. I think he would have been just as accepting even if Oliver didn't take the shot at Roscoe. Right, and that's what impressed him most about Oliver was the fact that Roscoe did have, oh no, sorry, it was DeSoto that had the scratch on his nose. Yes. That was who Oliver caught. Um, so the next day, they all go out. Oliver's in the gang. They go to start collecting and stealing because Fagan has to go to pawn shops to sell whatever it is that they can get so that he can repay uh, Sykes. And we have a scene where... You have Tito and Oliver are stealing a car radio out of a limousine. This might be, well, I don't know if it's my favorite scene because the the sweet scene before it is, is just like too good. But I love everything about this heist. I love that poor Einstein is the fall guy and then he switches out with Francis to do the death scene if you will uh and and i love that tito is just like the chihuahua is so perfect because they jump up and down but like he is just so excited to go and and steal yeah and he's got oliver being the lookout and winston the chauffeur is outside tending to francis who he thinks he's struck with the car and then here comes little jenny and she takes oliver And Jenny just has a heart of gold. And I love the confusion that is caused when her good-natured gesture is confused with Oliver being pinched and taking the fall for the gang. And while all of that is going on, it's peppered with Tito getting barbecued. There's so much happening. This is where... Again, it feels like that New York quick pace because this scene is is maybe what, like three or four minutes? It is quick, but there if is that. so much happening. Yeah. And Jenny is just so endearing. She's so cute. She really balances it because I think when you think about what they're doing, they're they're stealing a piece of a car, which is bad, but she softens the whole scene overall. And then this movie also does not get enough credit for how much classic Disney bait and switch there is and how much how many times this movie flips on itself where the situation goes awry. Yeah, it happens a lot. And I th- I love when Jenny gets home because she's just found out that her parents who are in Paris will now not be home for her birthday. She's going to spend her birthday by herself. Winston does not want her to keep this cat. She says mom and dad won't care because she can tell Jenny gets whatever she wants, but she doesn't treat the world like she gets whatever she wants. I think that she is just a good-natured kid. Um, and then we get to meet Georgette. And Winston says Georgette is not going to like the fact that this kitten is in the house and that the kitten is going to be getting all of the attention. And we find out immediately that Winston is absolutely right. Because if there's any intro in this film that's nearly as good as Dodgers, it's Georgette's. 
she is so extra. She's fantastic. I just love characters like this to begin with. Like, I love Miss Piggy. Who doesn't? That are just, you know, so wrapped up in their own hype that they can't see what's happening in front of them. She She's so great. She is. And Bette Midler just gives her so much life and so much attitude. Um, and I love what happens next, where Oliver is quickly accepted into, well, not by Georgette, but uh, certainly by Jenny. He's accepted into the family. He gets his collar. He gets his engraved bowl. Her parents let her keep him. Um, and as this is happening, and it's such a wonderful moment for both Jenny and Oliver, now you've got the gang planning this breakout, and they're going to go and rescue him and bring him back. And you know, as the audience, that they think they're doing the right thing, but you can't help but root against them the entire time. Right, because it's not like Oliver is turning his back on them and saying, well, I'm too good for you. I have it so easy now. My life is cushy. It's it's none of that. It's not about the food. It's not about this palatial house that he's in now. It's about that he found love. And you can't fault him for that. And Jenny's just so cute and you don't want to see your kitten taken away. So you are sort of rooting against this the gang. Um, while all of this is going on, though, quite possibly my favorite Disney Easter egg of all time. While they're plotting how to break Oliver out, Fagin is at the pawn shop. The man working at the pawn shop is a a caricature of Peter Schneider, who was a very polarizing figure. And the animators were constantly doing caricatures of him. This actually wasn't so bad. I don't think it, 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 I mean, it, it certainly didn't exaggerate him in any way or give you any sort of connotation about how you're supposed to feel about him. But it is so obvious. It is. After after it's been pointed out to you, you kind of wonder how you didn't notice it on your own. But that's it, right? It's, it's an Easter egg. You're not necessarily looking for it. But when you find it, it is absolutely brilliant. Especially because it comes on so quick and it's gone. Like, there's no exchange of words. There's no line. It, you, you just see Fagin holding up whatever he's trying to pawn. It was a pocket watch. It, yes, it was the pocket and it fell, watch. it falls apart. Uh, and, and then that's it. And then they're out of scene. Yeah. So the next scene is this breakout scene, this prison break scene. And I love it for everybody involved. I love it for the gang because it shows that, you know, they keep saying he's family, he's family, he's in the family, we got to help him. And I love that he hasn't been in the gang for all that long, but they're still willing to go through with this and really put themselves at risk because all they want is to break him out and undo the bad that they believe that they have led him to. I love it for Oliver because he needed that moment of, he he needed that, that awakening. He needed to know that he was in the right place and that he couldn't leave and he didn't want to leave Jenny. And it makes for a really sad moment later on. But I also love it for Georgette because it's so underhanded what she does, but it's so on brand for the character, and it totally blows up in her face later. So, like, the cause and effect for all of them just pays off, it, and it continues to pay off as the film goes on. 
What's really interesting about Georgette is that you get the impression that she is the parent's dog. I mean, obviously, she's not the family pet because it's all about the breeding and being in these shows and all of her achievements. Uh, So I kind of think that she's more associated with the parents than she is Jenny, because otherwise, why would Jenny care so much about Oliver? Why would she want a little sidekick if she already has a dog? I kind of feel like in Jenny's mind, Georgette just is what she is and she lives in the house and, and she's she's not supposed to be treated like a pet and she right. isn't. So Georgette has no loyalty to Jenny whatsoever. All she knows is this cat is in the house now. She doesn't want him there. He's eating out of her bowl. How dare you? And now she sees the opportunity to eliminate him with very little effort. Yeah. Um, and it's very smart of her because she eliminates him really. With, I mean, not not to get gruesome here, but without any blood on her hands, you know? Exactly. Uh, so it's it's just, like I said, it's on brand for the character. Let's talk about Fagin again, because as Oliver is brought back and you have that scene where Oliver is at odds with Dodger, and I understand why, and it makes sense, because you did needed that added you did need the added layer of drama between Dodger and Oliver. But you have Fagin now who had this really wonderful scene, this soft scene with all of them. And the second he realizes that Oliver's been taken in on Fifth Avenue, you get like this diabolical layer of him where he's going to take Oliver, who he does care for, mind you, and he's going to write a ransom note. Now, of course, he's not actually going to do anything to him if he doesn't get the money, but it certainly does peel back a layer of him that in desperation kind of reared its ugly head and... Up until this point in time, you don't see this coming from him. Right, because, you know, when we meet him, he's eating dog biscuits. You think he's already at rock bottom, but now his back is totally against the wall. And I think it is out of character for him because he does care for these animals. I mean, you know, he can barely feed himself, and yet he's got five dogs that he cares for, and now a cat. But... but I, I think it's just desperate times. It makes sense. I, I don't hold it against him for doing it. And I'll be honest with you, I kind of thought that this was the, a smart decision for the filmmakers to make. I really did like that this is where they took him. No, and I think that much is in character for him because obviously we know he was never going to hurt Oliver, but I think that he was going to try and outsmart Sykes. I think he had a bigger plan. And this is another example of there's a plan in place and something goes awry and they dig the hole even deeper. Yeah, uh, you could be right about that. You could be right about that. And the hole gets dug deeper as soon as little Jenny shows up with her piggy bank. I mean, just stop. (laughs) She shows up with her piggy bank and that's all the money that she has in the world because all she wants is to get Oliver home. As if Jenny isn't endearing enough, as if the movie doesn't have enough heart, 
this is what happens next. And that goes back to what you say before, is that she comes from a very wealthy family, but she's not a spoiled brat. She's not even playing the, my dad has money card. She just wants her cat back. And this is where I think it speaks to Dodger's character most, that even though he's mad at Oliver, he still has his back. And he's not going to let anything happen to either Oliver or Jenny. Right, because now Sykes goes next level. When Sykes arrives and he realizes that he can just take the kid and he's going to get what he wants. And he says to Fagan, as soon as he grabs Jenny and he pulls her into his car, he goes, our account is clear. Because he knows that by holding the kid ransom, he's going to get probably more than triple what Sykes owed him. Right. Or I'm sorry, what uh, what Fagan, Fagan owed him. Yeah, it's you could tell he, it's a it's. He's already got the numbers running in his head, and it's a much bigger game. Um, and, I mean, the the movie kind of continues to surprise you a little bit. And the, the brutal end that Roscoe and DeSoto face, um, that is something that, I mean, I'm not offended by it, but you would not see that in a Disney film today. No, and it's... It's definitely hard to watch because, you know, they've made a joke this whole time of Tito getting barbecued, which he does twice, once uh, with the car wires and then again uh, with the, the security camera. Yes. Um, first of all, I, I think the subway is very much over the top and... Again, we've said it, this movie kind of got gets forgotten about, but Sykes might be one of the worst Disney villains of all time. I mean, kidnapping, very bad. Uh, but a car chase down a subway tunnel, really, really bad. Uh, now, obviously, you're rooting for the gang and Oliver and Jenny to get away. You're rooting against your villains, but... When you strip it all down, there is a dog electrocuted on the third rail. And that is difficult to watch, even though you want to see your villain go down. It's horrible. It is. Um, You can make the case for the movie perhaps doesn't hold up to today's standards because that's what happens. But then at the the same time, uh, if, you know, when Scar gets eaten alive by... Uh, the hyenas, nobody bats an eye. So, I mean, it, it's like... I do. I love Scar. But, it, well, that says an, a, lot, a lot about you. A lot of, about you, for sure. <laughs> um, but, you know, it's like... It's it's that weight of justice, right? It's like the scale of justice. It's like DeSoto and Roscoe, horrible. Scar, yeah, that's fine. Um, I, I think you just have to kind of take it for what it is, but I'm sure that there are people certainly that are going to see that now and be shocked. Um, and then, of course, Sykes gets hit by the subway. Uh, really, it hits his car while he's sitting in it, and that that's perfectly fine. That's the other thing. Like, that's perfectly fine. We don't care about him. I'm just surprised that they actually took it there because obviously having been on the subway, like it is no joke when you are trying to get on the subway in rush hour and everybody's pushing. It is a miracle every day that somebody does not fall on those tracks. Well, somebody basically does every day. It's terrifying. It's absolutely terrifying. So in a way, I am surprised that they took it there. The only thing is it does get 
a little bit far-fetched that they're on this. It, it's not even a moped. It's like a, a shopping cart. It's like a Vespa that they have, with a shopping cart yeah. on the back of it. <laughs> that they've MacGyvered together. Um, and they're on the Brooklyn Bridge. And they jump the tracks with the with the Vespa. The jalopy Vespa. Yes. And um, it it sort of takes me out of the film a little bit. And just because Sykes' death is so over the top. I mean, obviously it's a cutaway. They don't show anything other than a cloud of smoke. But it's... I mean, they really went for it. They did. Um, and, I mean... Then the base, the movie just basically ends. We get Jenny's birthday party and they, the dogs and Fagin bring her a lot of garbage because that's all that they have, but they're trying to do something nice for her birthday. And now Winston is buddies with Fagin. Um, I love that they have sort of a bromance that formed out of this and they're watching boxing. And uh, I love that Jenny embraced all the dogs and wanted to celebrate with them. Uh, let me ask you, though. Do you do you like how it ends or do you think that we should have seen Jenny take them all in? I don't I didn't want to see Jenny take them all in because they are Fagans. To take to take them in means to take them from Fagan. And you don't want to see Fagan lose his animals. But the ending of the film is abrupt. I'm 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 going to go ahead and spoil my review here before we even get to the soundtrack. The only thing that's preventing this film from being perfect, in my opinion, is how abrupt the ending is. I'm not complaining about the runtime. The runtime at an hour and 17 minutes is fine, and I think the movie is well-paced. But the, the, you know, the, the, the epic conclusion of the film isn't really all that epic. And it kind of just happens quickly. It almost feels like okay, we got Jenny back. Let's just get out of this. That's a really interesting point, though, that you brought up about taking them away from Fagan. I hadn't even considered that because, in my opinion, I think it would have been too perfect if it was a happy ending for all the dogs. And it's not who they are. They don't want to be cooped up. Even though they're fighting for survival, Like they, they want to come and go as they please. Yeah. They are they are street dogs, and then you would have taken away exactly everything that they stand for. But I like that they kind of left the door open where Oliver can come hang with them whenever he likes, and should they need anything, they can go to Jenny and Winston. Um, but even still, even though they allude to that, yeah, it just kind of cuts out, like you said. It, it is a very jarring ending. Yeah, are you ready to talk about the soundtrack for this film so ready all right it's actually a very short soundtrack but i think the music that we do get from top to bottom is just phenomenal starting with once upon a time in new york city performed by huey lewis who i've seen in concert 17 times that's not a lie um and co-written by howard ashman um i said it before and i will say it again i am just so surprised that for the respect that Howard Ashman has always had with Disney, but more so in recent history because of Disney+, Plus, because of films like Waking Sleeping Beauty, 
and because of films like Howard and because of people like Don Hahn who are doing everything that they can to keep Howard Ashman's memory alive, um, I'm surprised that this song gets overlooked because this was the first of what was... I, I, I don't even care if you think it's melodramatic. Howard Ashman with Disney changed the world. And this was the start of it. Oh, he saved the company. There's no doubt about that. There is a very specific reason that they spent so much time focused on him and Waking Sleeping Beauty. And, you know, we can make the argument for for what Eisner did, for what Frank Wells did for the company, but you don't have the theme parks without the movies. And you don't have these movies without Howard Ashman. Uh, this song is just incredible. I mean, maybe it's because, like I said, I'm all in my feels about having just moved from New York. Uh, but I think that it so beautifully captures an era. Um, it romanticizes New York, like I said. And it, it was so funny. As soon as I put the two and two together, it's like, of course Howard Ashman wrote this because he did romanticize New York. He, he loved New York. He loved Broadway. He loved, you know the the people of the city he loved the nightlife he he loved everything about it and i think that's channeled into this song it's like listening to anthony kiedis sing about california but better yeah. <laughs> um <laughs> no no disrespect i love the chili peppers but it's it's getting old anyway um i i mean you know howard gets credit and, and we have reviewed the documentary howard on the show uh he gets credit for giving the Little Mermaid her voice and softening the beast and giving Aladdin that boyish charm. And I have said, I think one of his best songs, aside from anything he ever wrote for Ariel, uh, was Proud of Your Boy, which didn't make the cut for Aladdin, but it made it into the Broadway play. Uh, and I thought that that was such a great song because it channeled so much of who Howard is into it. And I love Suddenly Seymour from Little Shop of Horrors, but I I think I'm going on record to say that this is his best song. Ever? Wow. <sighs> it's it is that good. I'm I, I mean, I love the song, um, and I love how it does go hand in hand with what you're seeing on the screen without it being heavy handed, which I think does speak to the brilliance of the songwriting that is Howard Ashman. And I'm not complaining because, as I just said, I've seen Huey Lewis seven times, to- uh, 17 times. He's one of my favorites. When I was a kid, it was him and Billy Joel together. So this is why I watched the VHS tape by myself. Um <laughs> But I'm kind of surprised that Huey Lewis was the artist that they chose to sing this. I mean, he's got such a beautiful, soulful voice, um, and it works here. But he is such a San Francisco guy. It's like Steve Perry is a San Francisco guy, and Huey Lewis is a San Francisco guy. I mean, you're not going to get David Johansson to sing Once Upon a Time in New York City. Oh, I would have. Neil Diamond. Maybe you couldn't afford Neil Diamond, but Barry Manilow? Barry Manilow has a writing credit on this soundtrack. Not a fan of But would it have made more sense than somebody that is so entrenched in California? You see what I'm saying? Like, if you're really trying to hit home the New York thing, Huey Lewis did a great job here. I'm not critiquing his performance. I love the song that we got. I'm just surprised that for something that is so New York-centric that they didn't get a New York artist to perform it. 
Well, I think that's it, though. And it's an interesting argument that you're making. Why would they choose somebody from San Francisco? But we had said it before that Billy Joel was so representative of New York during this era. I think the bigger question is, why wouldn't they get him to just sing it? Because they thought enough to cast him in the film. But the answer to that question is, this is kind of an omniscient narrator singing this opening song. Right. You need a distinction between that and Dodger. So you can't have him doing both. And quite frankly, as great a singer as Billy Joel is, his voice isn't as soulful as Huey Lewis enough to pull this off. I would have been interested to see, like, if you... Like, if, if you handed it over, you know who actually I think would have been really good if you gave her a crack at it would have been Pat Benatar. I think if Pat Benatar Ooh. got this, it would have been really, really interesting. Again, I'm not complaining about Huey Lewis, but I'm just now I'm kind of like brain dumping and thinking here, like what other prom and it's the other thing, prominent at the time, New York based performers, Neil Diamond would have killed it. Barry Manilow, I think, would have killed it. And I think... I think Pat Benatar would have been phenomenal. I'm just glad you didn't say Gene Simmons. Um, no, because I didn't say, well, I didn't say Eddie Money either, but Eddie Money could have done this. Eddie Money, who was a New York City police uh, officer, he could have done this. Yeah, but was he big enough at the time? Because oh, I'm yeah. even thinking if you dip into the Jersey pool, Springsteen is is established at this point, but Jovi's only three years old. I th- I think Jovi could have done it, though. Jovi's Jersey though, but it's so, but he's so Jersey. That's my point. Right. He's so Jersey. No, Eddie Money could have done this. But this I'm, was I'm all, saying... I think this was the same year that Walk on Water or a year after Walk on Water came out. And, and you know, he already had two tickets to Paradise and Take Me Home Tonight. You, Eddie Money could have done this. I think I would have rather seen them dip into Jersey before Eddie Money did this. But if we're making the argument you said before, why would they pick somebody from San Francisco? At least Jersey, you're in the tri-state area. But like I said, Jovi's not established enough probably at this point. And Springsteen is way too raspy for this. Yeah. Um, all right. We're going to get off of this because we could sit here and play this game all night. But you you think it's Howard Ashman's best song. I think Huey Lewis did a great job, and I love the fact that Huey Lewis was the one that, like I like Huey Lewis is ever going to hear this, and like I feel the need to apologize for this rant. <laughs> but it's the song that we got, and it's absolutely spectacular. Well, I do have one more point to make about it, okay. and why I think it is Howard Ashman's best song is because he was so great at writing for characters. A lot of the other songs in his body of work are so rooted in the film and attached to the character this sort of transcends the film and it transcends New York because this is uh, what he evokes is a feeling uh, how anybody should feel about their hometown. And I think it's probably one of the most relatable things that he ever wrote. Sure. Why should I worry? Sung by Billy Joel. It is the song of the film. I, I don't think, I mean, Fight me on it. Find me a more forgotten classic than Why Should I Worry. You won't find one. You can't find one. It's a bop. It is a straight up bop. And as much as I will sing the praises of Once Upon a Time in New York City, I think that captures an era. But this does such a great job of capturing the beat of New York because there is a beat and a pulse, or at least there was before 
it started turning into Gotham. Uh, but I think this is one of those things that really paints a picture more than anything else is that you can just feel it in the street. There is an energy. And I love that they were able to not only capture that, but use it as a launch pad for this song. Song is great. However, animation in this sequence, not so much. For a film where they were placing so much emphasis on saving the company, it's an animated film. I mean, yes, the music is going to carry it and and help promote it. But at the end of the day, your animation better be on point. And there are some sloppy sequences. I really, it grieves me to say it in this number. Uh, When Oliver gets stuck in the cement, I don't know what is happening. I have tried to freeze it and figure it out. But you can see the outline of his paw through the cement and it's I'm wondering if they were supposed to have special effects on it and they didn't because they were starting to incorporate the computer right uh and you should have like gloppy goo over his paw and instead you can see the ink line of his paw through the gray cement and it looks terrible and it looks unfinished and I can't believe that that is proof of how forgotten this film is that they have not gone back and bothered to fix it now. I mean, if Spielberg went and added frames of E.T. where he's in a bathtub and added a whole scene, you would think that they would go and take care of this. And there has been much debate about it because some people have said, take the Twin Towers out. No. Yeah. People have made the argument to do it well, because it's triggering. Oh, the, this is how it was. The, the, no, that's no. what New York looked like. It, th- those were iconic beacons in the city. Yeah, no, you don't. You know what? I have an opinion of that, but I'm not going to share it on Monorail Radio. It's just not. I'm just not going to share my opinion of it. No, as people who've lived through 9/11, we're not even going to mess with that. But there is but an I've argument. Never, I've never heard such a stupid argument. Yeah. I'll. I, I'm. I'll at least say that. This is the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Yeah, no, there there are people who, who want it removed. Yeah, go get a new hobby. Yeah, leave it alone, but fix the paw. Uh, also, when Dodger gets lifted up on the piano, uh, I, I think again, well, no, with Oliver's paw, the ink line is showing through. Where Dodger's on the piano, it's not showing through. It's just his white fur and there's no edge and it goes right into the piano and it looks really wonky. Uh, And then that last shot where, you know, Dodger's like the Pied Piper leading all the dogs through the city. Yeah. It's great. I love what they did. I love the POV. I love the wide angle looking down at all these dogs. But I think this is also, I think this film falls a little bit victim to technology because it's so clear and the animation is it's just very simple these dogs look they're they're animated but there's no detail in them and you probably couldn't see that when this came out on the big screen or on vhs but you sure can on disney plus um i mean i guess it would just cost them way too much money to go and fix it. I actually want to go back and watch the DVD of Oliver and Company because there was one shot, and it it could have just been, again, a bad animation cell or a blurry animation cell, but it almost looked like there was something, and I I have to go back and watch it. 
it almost looked like they slam zoomed one frame of Oliver because there was like something in the background that at the time was acceptable, but they've now deemed unacceptable. And that was their way to like edit it out without giving the film like a warning. I don't know. Or it could just be, it could have just been a bad sell that was blurry. I totally missed that. All right. Well, we're going to have to look that one up and, and maybe we'll, uh, We'll post it or we'll post the time code so our listeners can see what the heck we're talking about. Yeah. All right. Streets of Gold is the next song on the soundtrack. And this is sung by the whole gang. It's sung by Rita. I just think it's a super fun number. It's so 80s. It really is an 80s pop song. But I think it's a super fun number and I love it for all of them. I do too. And I I like that they went for variety with what kind of music was popular at the time that it yeah. wasn't, you know, it's not like Tarzan where, you know, it's Phil Collins, no disrespect to Phil Collins. I love him, but I'm glad that even though they hired the name and this was really the start of them doing things like that. I love that the whole soundtrack does not sound like a Billy Joel CD because they did things. They were smart about it. They changed it up. Yeah. Perfect. Isn't easy. Barry Manilow's got a writing credit on it. It is sung by Bette Midler, and I'm just going to go on record, and I don't care. This is the superior Bette Midler Disney performance. Have at me. Oh, here we go. You didn't even wait for us to talk about character. You just had to jam that in there now, didn't you? Yep. (sighs) This, I mean, this is the character. It is, and that's why I'm not going to have the Hocus Pocus argument right now because I don't want to take away from how spectacular this number is and how perfect this song is for this character. It's such great development. I love, you know, I, I said it before, how obsessed she is with herself that it's not just that she's the little show pony. She's eating it up. Uh, and I love that Bette Midler got to showcase her range in this song, too. That last note, dang. And I think the whole sequence is great. Um, When you think about how some of the animation gets a little wonky in Why Should I Worry versus the animation here, here it's flawless. Yes. All right, Good Company is the next song and final song on the soundtrack. Like I said, it was quick. Um, It's the song that Jenny sings while she's practicing her piano. I love the song for Jenny. I love what it means for her relationship with Oliver. And I don't know what it is about this song, but there's something about it. And Rob Minkoff has a writing credit on it. But there's something about this song that just reminds me of the Shermans a little bit. Because I think, you know, when the Shermans could write like scales and arpeggios when they were writing something that was meant for like a a quote unquote child to be sung. Um, When you think about some of the songs they wrote for summer magic, they took very basic sort of lyrics, but they came up with very clever rhymes and they had a lot of heart. And I get a lot of that here. You just totally changed my mind about this song because uh, I agree with you. It totally reminds me of scales and arpeggios, but I was going to say it feels a little repetitive at times. But now that you're comparing it to the Sherman Brothers, it gets a pass. All right. Let's talk about the cast here. 
starting with Joey Lawrence. Whoa. Who plays Oliver. I mean, he's great. He, I think he really gave Oliver a lot of heart, a lot of innocence. He, he, I mean, I thought he did a really great job. I agree. He is what JTT is to young Simba. We're going to agree to disagree. There, I, I said there's just something about JTT as young Simba, but it's because when I was a kid watching Home Improvement, I've said this on the show a few times, I just was not a big JTT fan. No, but I'm saying as far as giving the character an innocence and a heart and making him endearing, I think Joey Lawrence did as good a job as JTT does. JTT did a great job making Simba very smug. And making him a spoiled brat. I mean, yeah, I mean, he knocked out, he knocked the role out of the park. Uh, so, yes, to that point, Joey Lawrence did just as good a job. Billy Joel is Dodger. Billy Joel, I've said it before, he, at the time, was New York. I think he killed this role. He, Billy Joel didn't do a lot of acting. He's never done a lot of acting. I mean, in reality, he, pr- I mean, he he did a great job. I thought, I thought his acting thought his voice acting was spectacular. He probably couldn't do much more than this particular role because I think this role was made for him. But I'm surprised with that said that you didn't see him transition more into acting because I think he could handle it. I agree, or at least do more voice acting because, you know, he's got obviously a very thick accent, but you would think that he might have been inclined to do more cameos in other animated films taking place in New York. Um, I I think he's incredible to a point where I I feel like a lot of people don't know that he did both the voice and the singing. I feel like, because in a lot of situations like this, I mean, Bette Midler was what she was at the time. Like she was a huge star. She could handle both. But this was at a time where your speaking and singing voices were still sometimes two different people. Right. Uh, And I think a lot of people would be surprised to know that he did do both. Yeah. Cheech Marin as Tito is absolute perfection. I love the character. I love Cheech Marin. I love the, you know, I love how suave he thinks he is with Georgette. This is perfect casting. I love when he's teaching Georgette to dance at the end. Uh Absolutely perfect casting, and clearly Disney thought so too because this was the start of a long-lasting relationship with Cheech Marin. Yeah, Bette Midler as Georgette. We talked about her before. We've mentioned her quite a few times. Um, She was perfect casting. I mean, that's the thing. Like, You can kind of go down the line here and for the most part be like, yep, perfect casting, perfect casting, perfect. Just check, check, check one after the next, and she's absolutely on that list. I agree, but I I think it's like almost a disservice to bet that, you know, we're talking about they were casting big names of the time to to use to promote the film, essentially. She's perfect no matter what. She's perfect either way. Uh, I, I don't think it's fair to necessarily say she got it because she's a big name. Yeah, I think she was A-list talent. That's obviously what they were going for, and Disney was not afraid to open the purse strings. But her talent is the reason why she was an A-lister, and the talent 
more than anything else, I think is why she got this role. I would almost be inclined to say that this is similar to what Idina is to Frozen, but the difference is that Bette Midler was more established at the time, which is obviously what got her considered for the role, but there is a reason that she won out against all the competition because she's fantastic. Maybe maybe uh, Angela Lansbury as Mrs. Potts is the better comparison than Idina Menzel in Frozen. Angela Lansbury was established, but come on, she's perfect. Yeah. Cheryl Lee Ralph plays Rita. To your point that you made earlier, she's sort of the mother of the group. I like that she's there. Her softness is there to balance out Dodger. And I think that the screenwriters gave her a lot of good dialogue. I thought she did a great job. I think that's so important because other than Jenny, this movie would be a total guys film. And I I think it would feel like more of a gang and less of a family if it was a group of all male dogs. For, For sure. So you definitely needed her to soften it. Uh, but I like that they didn't just, you know, shoehorn a female in. They actually gave her a fully developed character and legs to stand on. Yeah. Roscoe Lee Brown plays Francis. I mean, his his thespian ways are just, it, it never gets old. It's so funny. Yeah, I said it before. I'm a sucker for characters like this to begin with, but just... The aesthetic of a bulldog being so into the theater, it's just fantastic. Richard Mulligan plays Einstein. I said it before and I'll say it again. Um, Einstein's lovable and he is very good comic relief. I mean, I hate to say it, there's not much else you can say about him um, because he doesn't play a huge role in the film, but the role that he does play, it it keeps the movie lighthearted in times where it gets very serious. Yeah, I mean, Einstein probably has the least lines and the least screen time, but he does have one of the most important moments because in that scene where we meet Fagin and everybody goes to sleep, he's the one who wants the story read and he is the one who stays right by Fagin's side. All of them, you know, uh, Rita has her own little house. Of course, Dodger's got his big cushy bed. Uh, Tito and Francis are together, but... Einstein is the one who stays with Fagin. Maybe because he's the largest dog and he feels like he's the biggest protector. And he's the oldest one. Right. Dom DeLuise plays Fagin. We, so we're getting all the way through the cast and only now are we talking about Dom DeLuise. I mean, the man's a legend. Perfection. And he's perfection. He's great in the role. Um, and it makes sense that they would cast him here because at the time... He was doing a lot of voiceover work, and he was very successful with it. So it was another A-list actor that was going to help draw people in. Well, they almost didn't get him, though, because he was doing a lot of voice acting with Don Bluth. Right. To me, he's the most familiar, and and you kind of hear it dip in and out. I mean, it's his voice. Of course, it's going to. It's Troll in Central Park, I think, is the closest uh, to how Fagin sounds. Um, but we are so lucky that he wanted to do this film enough that he fought to do it and get the role of Fagin over getting contracted into the whole 
Don Bluth factory. Right. Um, see, and you say troll in Central Park, and I think all dogs go to heaven. Oh, right. No, but, there there was a cutoff point for me of all dogs go to heaven, and I thank God that it's not a Disney movie, and I don't have to watch it now as an adult. <laughs> Uh, can't can't do that one anymore. That one's retired for me. That and Land Before Time. That and La- really in Land Before Time. Interesting. Interesting. Oh yeah. Okay. Okay. I haven't seen Land Before Time in quite some. Then I guess next time I revisit it, I'll do it alone. Natalie Gregory plays Jenny. I love Jenny. I just love Jenny. I don't know what to, what else to say. She's adorable. She is. Um, and I'm going to just kind of lump all three of them together here. Um, Robert Logia is Sykes. Uh, Tyrone Block and Carl Weintraub are Roscoe and DeSoto. The three of them together, um, they make for good villains. They make for good, uh, you know, antagonists. Um, I think Roscoe is the strongest of the three. Um, I mean, Sykes is forgotten about because this entire film seems to have been forgotten about. Um, I thought he was a good villain. Again, I think part of the reason why I sort of just lump all three of them together and move on with it is because, first off, this is a huge cast to begin with. Um, And you can only spend so much time talking about all of them. But it goes back to the, the... ending of the film being so abrupt because the film ends so abruptly and I the conclusion to me is is a little weak I feel like that was an opportunity to really pay off on these villains and that is the weaker point of the film where I think they did do a good job with the villains though is that you had the human conflict between Sykes and Fagin uh, and that also depicts, again, what was going on in New York. You know, you've got the, we don't really know what Sykes is all about, but I think we can assume mob boss and he's trying to get Fagan to, you know, go get the money for him. Uh, that's all, you know, based in reality there. Uh, but what I like is that they layered it and that the dogs also have a score to settle. It's not just about being loyal to their humans. You kind of get the impression that Roscoe and DeSoto uh, have a history with Dodger. Yeah, you could tell that this has been going on for quite some time, like almost before the relationship with Fagan. Exactly. And you know what? They allude to it enough. I don't even need to know what that backstory is. You know, I'm I'm good with it. Yeah, I don't need it fleshed out. And, and I guess that's kind of the brilliance of the screenwriting is we don't know what it is, but we know that it's there. All right. Um, final thoughts on Oliver and company, because I feel like we've just run through the gamut tonight. I'll go first if you don't mind, because I yes. feel like I will be faster than you because this is your movie. Uh, I love this movie. I wish I had seen it in theaters as a kid and had grown up with it. Well, no, you can't really grow up with it because it wasn't on a VHS. VHS. But I wish I had seen it as a kid. Uh, Although, well, no, I take that back because then that would mean that Little Mermaid was not my first film in theaters. And I would have been two, so I would have been too young to appreciate it. But this certainly got lost to time for me because I didn't see it until much later on since they never had the release. But... I wish it was a staple of my childhood. Um, 
because I think this is certainly one that you can grow up with. I think that you'll find it entertaining as a kid and you'll get more and more out of it as you grow with it. Um, I think that's because of the way that they layered these characters and their relationships with each other. Um, I love the setting. Obviously we've gone on and on about that at length. Uh, I absolutely love the music and it's like you said before, this should be a perfect film. What stops it from being perfect for me though, is that it's an animated feature. The animation has to be perfect and it's just not in places, but it is a spe spectacular film. And I think it's one of the best adaptations that Disney has ever done. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think that the pacing's great. I think the characters are great. They're well fleshed out. The music is phenomenal. The cast is insane. Um, I think a lot of the animation is great. There are spots where it's rough, but where it's not rough, it's spectacular. Um, yeah, it's it's just that rushed ending for me. But this is a film that it didn't get a VHS released. It's well documented that it wasn't given a VHS release. There's never been a reason given as to why it didn't get a VHS release. There's no reason why the Black Cauldron got a VHS release before Oliver and Company. There's no reason for it. And there's never been one given and they probably never will give one. Um, believe me, and this wasn't like when the Disney animated films were not getting home video releases. They had already done it with Pinocchio, and these films were getting home video releases. It blows the mind that this movie would not have been given a home video release, given how special it is for the history of Disney because speaking of the land before time, remember the Care Bears movie beat uh, the Black Cauldron and f an American tale had outperformed. Um, I think it was the Great Mouse Detective. I can't quite remember, but the Great Mouse Detective did well, but there was another Disney film that had come out and it was the Don Bluth machine mm -hmm. after Bluth left Disney and this beats the land before time. This was the first real throw money at it and get A-listers and let's get it done. So I think it's a shame that the movie has been forgotten about. And I and I think that's exactly what it has been. I think it's been forgotten about. I think that if you haven't seen it, I think you have to go see it. Um, if your kids haven't seen it, I think you need to show it to them. This is a film that needs to be rekindled it's a film that needs to be reborn and that's not to say we need a live action remake we certainly don't um but i think this film in its form for very few of its warts but for all the things it did right it needs a second life and i think there's an opportunity for that on disney plus but we want to know what you have to say about Oliver and Company. You can let us know your opinions of the film on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Monoreal Radio, or you can email us, monorealradio at gmail.com. News of the week is coming up, but first, a quick break. Hey, everyone, this is Brian down here in South Florida. I'm about two hours south of Disney, and when it comes to planning vacations, Jackie's the way to go. I have a quick story for you. When it came to booking my family vacation for my two-year-old daughter and my wife, 
you know, like everybody, I immediately went to the internet, started scouting prices, compiling lists, and uh, building my perfect vacation at Disney. Just out of curiosity, I reached out to Jackie. She mentioned she was uh, booking vacations for many people. So I gave her my uh, list, my itinerary. She looked it over, and when she came back to me, she gave me her recommendations in regards to the parks. However, she also had new pricing associated with it. Um, I've learned that going on my own doesn't necessarily mean that I'll be getting the best pricing. Jackie was able to beat the majority of the pricing within my list and saving me a ton of money, but she has the insight and the connections to do so. On top of that, it was stress-free, so all my vacations in the future are gonna be through her because I don't have to think about it. She plans it, I give her some information in regards to what I wanna do, what my plans are for that week when I go visit Disney, and she'll make it happen and create the itinerary for me. She's a market expert. Myself, I go into a park, I immediately hop on the next line, I get a few fast passes, and at the end of the day, I don't accomplish everything like I would want to. She advised on which rides to attack first, which restaurants I should schedule on what day, and how to properly allocate my time to maximize my vacation. It was an amazing process. Thanks, guys. Talk to you soon. Way to go, Monoreal. Keep it going. So if you would like completely free assistance from a Florida local planning your Disney trip, you can get in touch with me through any of our social media outlets at Monoreal Radio on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or you can email me directly at j.zolezzi, that's Z-O-L-E-Z-Z-I, at MagicalVacationPlanner.com. News this week is brought to you by Karma and Kismet Designs. If you are looking for invitations, save the dates, thank you cards if you're hosting an event, Kelly will have you covered. Her work is spectacular. Plus, listeners of the show get a 10% discount with the code MONOREAL10 at checkout. Be sure to see everything that she has to offer at karmaandkismetdesigns.com. That's karma, the letter N, kismetdesigns.com. Olivia Rodrigo, who has exploded after her role on High School Musical, the musical, the series. So I feel like we as a Disney community helped discover her. None of us cast her, but we helped discover her. I feel like I owe her an apology because I totally wrote off that whole thing. Um, She's got a show coming to Disney Plus called Coming Home to You. It's dropping on March 25th. And it's another one of these docu-film, docu-series kind of drops on Disney+. Plus. We've seen it before. Taylor Swift and Billie Eilish. And now you're seeing it here with Olivia Rodrigo. And it makes sense that they're doing it with her, obviously. She's got that Disney contract. And listen, they're going to milk this for all it's worth because once her high school musical contract is gone, she is so huge. She's going to go off and do her thing for a while, and she should. Um, but I like that we're getting more unique, interesting, original content on Disney+. Plus. Well, to me, this makes more sense than... T- I mean, I love Taylor Swift, but it makes way more sense than Taylor Swift and Billie Eilish because she already has the Disney contract. I think that's a more interesting spin is to see people who started with Disney and how their careers are growing. Uh, but what's really interesting about this is that, you know, this is the album that really was a springboard for her as far as breaking out of the Disney pigeonhole. Right. This is a huge album. It's got some really great songs. I've really enjoyed her music, but the irony here is that, and I'm not sure if you know this because uh, you you don't necessarily follow pop culture the way I do. Uh, Not since I left Top 40 Radio. (laughs) I went back into my hole where I belong. 
Well, the irony is that this album, a lot of them are breakup songs because she started dating her co-star on the show and he broke her heart and she is angry. So she's doing the Taylor Swift thing. The Taylor Swift thing. The Alanis thing. This girl is mad. <laughs> it's, I don't know. There's just something about the way you said that struck me as very funny. Taylor Swift will burn you, but like, no, Olivia Rodrigo has some like Alanis energy. Well, it's it's time, right? Because we haven't had somebody like that since Alanis Morissette. You know, yeah. 25 years later, like we need that. Like give us something different. I am I'm all for it. I'll give it a listen. No, uh, I'm I'm interested to watch this because she her music has such a maturity. Like I can't believe how young she is and she is feeling everything so deep but articulating it in such a way that makes it relatable to somebody who's almost twice her age. Oh my god. All right, let's talk about award season because we're coming up on it. Um, well, I mean, we're in it right now. Um, Encanto is taking home some hardware, which surprises nobody. Yvette Marino and Clark Spencer have won a Producers Guild of America Award for Outstanding Producer of an Animated Theatrical Motion Picture. So they win there for Encanto. It also won... Uh, for motion picture animated at the Cinema Audio Society Awards. And we have another one here. The Guild of Music Supervisors have awarded uh, Dos Aruguitas. Um, it has won Best Song Written and or Recorded for a Film. And uh, congratulations to Lin-Manuel Miranda, who really did write a lot of spectacular music for this. This is the first of many we have the academy awards coming up this week Don't, it's gonna clean up it, it's gonna it's going to clean house we're like honestly i'll be interested to see next week when we're sitting here it's not gonna be how many did it win it's gonna be how many did it not win because there's gonna be far more that it won than didn't win. And the ones that it doesn't win, we're going to sit there and say, what did this other thing have that Encanto didn't? Right. All right. Well, that's going to do it for us. Thank you guys so much for joining us this and every week on Monorail Radio. Don't forget to like us on that social media, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at Monorail Radio. Be sure to like, subscribe, and rate us on Verbal or your podcast platform of choice. If you want to send us an email, we are always interested in hearing from you. Radio at gmail.com. And for links to everywhere you can find the show, it is online at monorealradio.com. For Jackie, I'm Sean. Have a magical week, everyone. On behalf of Monoreal Radio, we'd like to thank you for joining us. We'll see you at the movies, the stuff dreams are made of.